May we never forget that phrase surfaced in the aftermath of 9-11. The idea of that phrase is that we should remember. We should remember the grief of those that lost loved ones on that day. We should remember the heroism of so many on that day. And we should remember the sacrifice of those that gave their lives for others on that day. May we never forget. We understand what that phrase is all about. Well, that phrase also encapsulates a spiritual principle. God wants us to remember. He does not want us to forget who He is and what He's done in our lives. And we will see that clearly in our passage this morning. So look there with me in Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4. We are continuing our study through this Old Testament book, Joshua chapter 4. And we will begin reading in verse 1. Joshua chapter 4, verse 1. I want to ask you this morning, if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. So grateful for our music team this morning. Wasn't that awesome? Being able to praise God together. That was incredible. I got so excited during some of the songs, I almost turned on my mic. Because sometimes Travis needs a little boost. Joshua chapter 4, but I didn't do that. Amen. Joshua 4 verse 1, the Bible says, When all the nation finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe of man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today in Jesus' name, and we are grateful for yet another opportunity, a privilege, Lord, to come together and worship you. And Lord, I pray that today, as we study your word by your Spirit, You would open the eyes of our hearts and help us to understand what it means to remember and how important it is to remember. Lord, have your way in our midst. Touch our hearts, change our lives as we lift up the name of Jesus in this place. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we have worked our way through the book of Joshua, we've seen that God desired to give His people, the Hebrews, a land in which to dwell and thrive. 
And to get them into the land, he had to get them across the Jordan River. And so, miraculously, God parted the waters of the Jordan River uh, during the time of the year when the river was flooding. So this was a dramatic display of God's power. And he brought them across the Jordan into the promised land. It was a mighty act. And here in chapter 4, we see that God commands them to commemorate this event with a memorial. He tells Joshua to have a representative from each tribe carry a stone out of the Jordan and to put it into a pile of stones. And that pile of 12 stones would serve to remind God's people of this mighty act. It was to be a memorial. Now the word memorial found there in verse 7 when it says, These stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. That word is the Hebrew word, zikaron. It means uh, an object or an event that serves as a reminder. There's no question this pile of stones was to, was to jolt the memory of God's people. So they would remember what God had done. Now, here's the question. What specifically were they remembering about the parting of the River Jordan and about the circumstances surrounding the parting of the River Jordan? Well, as we look at the text this morning... We see there are several things that the people were remembering or commemorating. First of all, the people commemorated the power of God's mighty act. The power of God's mighty act. In verse 7 it says, You shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. So this memorial pile of stones was to remind them of how supernatural this act was. You remember the story we studied last week that God had the priest carry the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized his presence, into the Jordan River. And when their feet touched that river, the waters parted. The Bible says the waters were moved back all the way to the city of Adam, which was miles upriver. So this was miraculous. God parted the waters, and then caused his people to walk across the river on dry land. So as they look at these stones, they are remembering God's might. They're remembering God's power. They're remembering what God had done. They're commemorating this mighty act. But secondly, not only were the people commemorating the power of God's mighty act, the people were commemorating the place of God's mighty act. Look what it says in verse 8. The people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel just as the Lord told Joshua. So they did what God told them to do. But look in verse 9. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood and they are there to this day. So not only did Joshua have representatives from each tribe carry a stone out of the river and set it up in a pile. He had people set up stones right in the middle of the river where the feet of the priests had stood. He's commemorating the place of this mighty miracle. And the idea here is this. When the waters are no longer at flood levels, when the waters recede, perhaps you'll see that pile of stones right where the feet of the priests were. And when you see those stones, it will remind you of what God did to part the waters of the Jordan and get his people across. And so by putting the stones in the middle of the Jordan, they are commemorating the place of God's mighty act. And you and I understand that, don't we? 
that there can be a place that is special to us because it's where we saw God do something significant in our life. And every time we see that place or think about that place, we remember what God has uh, done years ago. Our Mississippi Baptist Convention had to make a very difficult decision to sell the Gulf Shore Assembly on the coast of this state. And it was a place where they had camps and retreats, a a beautiful location, but it was damaged by uh, Katrina, and it just made uh, fiscal sense to to sell it uh, and, and, and move on from that location. But it was a very difficult decision, and this is why it was so difficult. They had people emailing and writing letters saying, I was saved at Gulf Shore Assembly. I was there at a camp or a meeting, and I heard someone preach the gospel, and I gave my life to Jesus. Or others wrote in and said, I, I was called to preach at Gulf Shore Assembly, or, or I was called to be a missionary there, or I met my future spouse there, and on and on and on. It was a special place. It was a hard decision because it was a special place where people had seen God move. I'll give you an example closer to home. When this church started in 2002, we started in a converted hardware store on the downtown square. It was Capital Hardware, and we began to lease that space to have somewhere to meet. And we got together with a core group and opened the doors on September 8th of 2002 and began to have church in that converted hardware store. It was an old building. As a matter of fact, when we uh, took possession of it, began to lease it. We had to bring an environmentalist to come in and get the asbestos tile out. It was a, a major deal. And we had to renovate and put up some walls and make an area for preschoolers and, and children and had to set up an area for worship and put some more bathrooms in there. It was a, it was a major deal. And it was an old building. And, and, and many people that are affiliated with the church don't even know about that part of our story. Uh, but now it's a restaurant. It's a good restaurant. I, I like the restaurant. But can I tell you just honestly... It's still weird for me to go to that restaurant because I go in there and where the greeter is is where my office used to be and, and I look over where the pulpit used to be and where the nursery area used to be and it's just strange. It's just a it's strange feeling. Rest, food's good, restaurant's good, nothing wrong with that, but it's just a strange feeling because it's a special place. For about three years we met there and God added to our number greatly and we met with the living God in that old hardware store. We saw God change lives in that old hardware store. So this is a special place. You understand what this is like, don't you? They wanted to commemorate the place where they saw God move. Third, the people commemorated the perpetual faithfulness of God's mighty act. Look what it says in chapter 4, verse 19. It says, The people came out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. And so they set up camp there in Gilgal and put the stones into a pile in Gilgal. But notice there, it says they came up out of the Jordan, they crossed the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. Now, here's why that's significant. I mentioned this in passing last week, but I want to kind of go a little bit further this week. Uh, That day is also mentioned in the book of Exodus, the 10th day of the first month. The 10th day of the first month was the day when the Hebrews were to select the Passover lamb. Now, you know that story. God was going to come with a 10th plague to, to get Pharaoh's attention so he would let 
the Hebrews leave Egypt and get out of that place and go toward the promised land. And God was going to come through the land and kill the firstborn child of every family. But he gave his people a provision so their kids could be safe. He said, if you'll take a Passover lamb and you'll kill the lamb and take the blood and put it over your doorpost, when I come through Egypt in judgment, if I see the blood on your doorpost, I will pass over your house and the firstborn in your house will be saved. And based upon that devastating judgment, Pharaoh will say, get out of here and you'll be freed from Egyptian bondage and slavery. This was the, the exodus. And so the, this, this amazing event began when God said, get a Passover lamb. Select a Passover lamb. That was on the first day of the 10th month. That was when the exodus was going to start or commence. Now, 40 years later to the date, on the 10th day of the 4th month, they are crossing the Jordan into the promised land. In other words, God was finishing what he started. He, he's showing them his perpetual faithfulness. I told you way back on the 10th day of the first month, hey, get a Passover lamb, I'm about to move. I'm going to lead you out of Egypt. And now, 40 years later, on the exact date, he brings them into the land. They were commemorating the perpetual faithfulness of God's mighty act. And by the way, aren't you glad that God finishes what he starts? Over in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, the Bible says that he who begins a good work in us will complete it. I'm so glad that when I was saved at nine years of age, God didn't say, hey, Wade, you're in now, good luck. No, God began a good work in my life, and he hasn't left me alone since. When, when I've begun to stray as a, a child of God, he took that shepherd's staff and that crook, and he pulled me back in the right direction. When, when I needed strength to keep on keeping on, God gave me the strength that I needed. When I needed wisdom, God gave me wisdom. When I needed provision, God gave me provision. God has been changing me, making me more like Jesus. And one day, when it's all said and done and it's time for me to go home, God will bring me home to glory. He finishes what he starts. There's commemorating here the perpetual faithfulness of God's mighty act. And then last, the people commemorated the purpose of God's mighty act. In verse 21, also I mentioned this last week as well, it says, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground for, here's the purpose, the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So every time they look at this pile of 12 stones, they're reminded that God parted the, rivers, uh, the river Jordan so that the nations could see his power and so that his people would fear him and reverence him and stand in awe of him. That was the purpose of God's miracle here. And so they're commemorating the purpose with these 12 Stones. And so we see here in chapter 4 that God thinks it's important for his people to remember his faithfulness. And not only do we see that in Joshua chapter 4, we see this theme all throughout God's word. The Bible emphasizes the importance of memorials because you and I tend to forget the gracious and mighty acts of God. I don't know why it is. But you and I, we get busy with life, we get distracted by circumstances, and we tend to forget 
how great God is, and we tend to forget how good God is. And so God tells us all throughout the Bible, you need to remember, over in Exodus, the the Passover lamb, that was to be a, a yearly thing where they took up Passover lamb to remember what God had done in leading them out of Egypt. Here in Joshua, there's a pile of stones so they would remember. We'll see some more piles of stones as we walk through Joshua so that they would remember God's faithfulness. And in the New Testament, God puts things in place so you and I will remember what he has done. This is a continual theme throughout the Bible because there is danger in forgetting. The reason God wants us to remember him, remember what he's done is because there is danger in forgetting. For example, look with me in Judges chapter 2, the book right after Joshua. Judges chapter 2. Look what the Bible says in verse 8. Judges 2 verse 8. The Bible says, And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnoth Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So after Joshua died, another, another generation forgets what God had done. They forget his power. They forget his grace. So look what happens next. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, false gods. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Not a pretty sight. And as you continue to study Judges, you see how devastating this was to the people of Israel as they forgot God and chased false gods. You see how depraved and evil they were when they took their eyes off of the Lord. There is danger in forgetting. When you and I lose sight of who God is and what God has done, we tend to chase other things. And when we fail to pass down to others, the next generation, who God is and what he's done, they will be prone to chase other things, to chase other gods, to live according to what they think is right in their own eyes because they do not remember the Lord. There is danger in forgetting. And so you and I need to, along with the Israelites in Joshua 4, we need to remember who God is and what God has done so we don't go astray. Now, how do we do that? I want to spend the remainder of this sermon being very practical to give you some thoughts, some ways that we can remember God's mighty and gracious acts. Six ways that we can remember God's mighty and gracious acts. And by the way, uh, the word mighty and the word gracious are both important. Because if we've seen God's power in our life, if, if we've seen God move in a dramatic way, it's always grace. Because if God has moved in my life or your life, we don't deserve it, right? So when we remember, we remember his might 
and we remember His grace, His unmerited favor in doing something in our lives. And so, six ways we can remember God's mighty and gracious acts. Number one, observe the Christian ordinances. Observe the Christian ordinances. In the New Testament, Jesus gives His church two ordinances that He commands them to observe. And these ordinances serve to help you and to help me remember what God has done for us. The first one is baptism. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus gives us the Great Commission. He says, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So Jesus says when someone becomes a follower of mine, when they are saved, when they are born again, they need to be baptized. Now, what is baptism all about? Well, first of all, it's a symbolic picture of some beautiful realities. First of all, when someone is baptized, you see them go under the water and come up out of the water. That reminds us that Jesus died for our sins He was buried, and early on the third day, he rose from the grave. Every time we see someone baptized, we are reminded of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And also, when we see someone baptized, we're reminded of what God does in an individual's life when he saves them. It pictures, Romans 6 tells us, of the old self dying and and the person being raised to walk in newness of life. Every time someone's baptized, we're reminded that when God saves somebody, their old self passes away, and they are made a brand new creation in Jesus Christ. Beautiful picture, right? So those are symbolic reminders every time we see someone baptized. And practically speaking, baptism, going underwater and coming up out of the water, is a memorable event, right? I believe one of the reasons God gave us baptism, immersion underwater, which is what the Greek word means, baptizo, is so that we would remember that moment. I remember when I was baptized, was saved on a summer afternoon. My pastor came out to my house and shared the good news with me. I clearly saw that I was a sinner in need of a Savior, and by faith I accepted God's free gift of eternal life. That next Sunday I went forward to make a public declaration of my faith. I was a follower of Christ. The next Sunday, I was baptized as a way for me to tell the congregation, I identify with Jesus. I am a follower of his. I am saved. And I remember being baptized. I remember the water was cold. We didn't have a heater. Cold water. But I remember that moment. It's a memorable event, isn't it? Think about Acts chapter 8. Philip is walking along in the desert and he sees this Ethiopian eunuch riding by in a chariot and he's reading Isaiah and doesn't understand what he's reading. And and Philip, this deacon in the early church, gets in the chariot with him and says, hey, this is talking about Jesus Christ. He shares the gospel. The Ethiopian eunuch saved and and he says, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip says, well, there's some water right over there. You can be baptized. And so Philip goes down into the water with the Ethiopian eunuch He baptizes him, he gets back in his chariot and goes back to Ethiopia. Do you think that Ethiopian court official ever forgot that day? No. There's something memorable about being baptized. We remember the gospel. We remember uh, what God has done in our lives. Being baptized is a very memorable event. It's, It's drawing a line in the sand and saying, this is the day when I'm publicly declaring I follow Jesus. Baptism is a big deal. I call it the 
first step of obedience for a follower of Christ, which leads me to say this. If you're here today and you've been born again and you haven't taken steps to be baptized, why? It's a beautiful picture of what Christ has done for you. It's a beautiful picture of what Christ has done in you. And it's a a spiritual line in the sand saying, I want everyone to know I follow Jesus. You'll never forget the day when you're baptized. And so Jesus gives us this ordinance to observe so we will remember. The second ordinance that Jesus gives us is called the Lord's Supper. Taking of bread to remember the broken body of Christ, drinking the cup to remember the shed blood of Christ. And when Jesus institutes this Lord's Supper in Luke chapter 22, verses 19 and 20, he says, Do this in remembrance of me. The the very purpose of the Lord's Supper is so that you and I will remember what Christ did for us when he went to the cross and died for our sins. I don't know why it is that you and I are prone to forget, but Jesus gives us this ordinance so it'll be before us and we will remember his love displayed at Calvary. The Lord's Supper is very important. If you're wondering when we're going to observe the Lord's Supper again on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, that Sunday night, we'll get together and have a worship service. And on that night, as is our tradition, on Palm Sunday, we will observe the Lord's Supper as a way to prepare our heart for the Passion Week leading up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So come and be here that night and and you can observe the Lord's Supper and you can remember what God has done for you. And so, the first way, practically, that you and I can remember God's mighty and gracious purposes or acts is to observe the Christian ordinances. Secondly, another way you can remember God's mighty and gracious acts is by reading the Bible. Reading the Bible. In the Bible, we see one big story of redemption. And when we read the Bible, we are reminded of all that God did and has done and is doing in our lives to save us and to transform us for our good and for his glory. Look with me over in Psalm 119. Psalm 119. We see this emphasis in the words of the psalmist. Psalm 119, verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I'm told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make Watch this. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. So the psalmist is saying, as I engage the Bible, as I read the Bible, I will see your power and your grace so clearly And it will lead me to meditate upon, to think deeply about who you are, what you've done to provide for my redemption. When we read the Bible, we will be more prone to remember God than we would be to forget God. We must read our Bible if we are going to remember. I can't tell you how important it is that you systematically, consistently read through God's Word. Get a Bible reading plan and and once a year, a year and a half, or two years, whatever timeline works for you, read through God's Word, all of it, all of it. So you are reminding yourself from the truth of the Word of God how 
faithful God is, how mighty God is, how merciful God is, how gracious God is, how loving God is, how majestic God is, how glorious God is. Read your Bible. You can't overemphasize how important it is. Some of you are struggling with remembering God in your life because you don't read your Bible. You wonder why you're so distracted with life and why you don't think about Jesus from Monday through Saturday. It's because you are not consistently, regularly engaging the Word of God. Read the Bible. It will help you to remember God's mighty and gracious acts. Third, pray. Pray. And and when you pray, when you express your gratitude... Remember all that God has done. Look what it says over in Psalm 44. Psalm 44, verse 1. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. The psalmist here is praying to God. He's talking to God. And in the context of his prayer, he's remembering God's faithfulness to the Israelites, and he's remembering God's faithfulness in his own individual life. So as he prays, he remembers. In the context of his prayer, he's remembering. In his book, Praying With Your Eyes Wide Open, Richard Pratt expresses how important this is and how this can enhance and enrich our prayer life. He tells us to learn to express our gratitude by telling God stories from our life. Now, I want to encourage you to learn to express your gratitude by telling God stories from your life. What do you mean telling God stories from our life? I mean that instead of just saying thank you as you're talking to God, recount the story. Tell him why you're thankful, how you saw God's hand at work. Richard Pratt writes this. Every believer has a story to tell God. For he always performs wonders for his children. Recovery from an illness, the resolution of a family problem, the deliverance of a friend from some kind of trouble. God invites us to come to him and tell him our story. To be sure, he already knows the blessings he has given us. We do not inform him of anything new. Instead, we tell our story to give him the pleasure of enjoying our gratitude. As a loving father, God takes great delight in hearing stories of thanksgiving from his children. Some people love to journal. because they're, As they're praying, they're remembering what God has done. Or they like to write down prayer requests or answer prayers. Journaling is a great way to remember in the context of prayer. But when we pray, if we learn to tell God the story of what we're thankful about, it will, it will move our hearts to greater worship. For example, parents, you know what it's like on Christmas morning to give 
your child a gift that they really wanted. And they're excited, right? They open the door. Oh, man, they're excited by the gift. So that's one thing. When they look and say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's what I wanted. Thank you, thank you. That's one thing, right? It's another thing when they come back a couple weeks later. And they tell you, thank you again for the gift. They tell you how they've been using it, what they've been doing with the gift. How much the gift means to them. That's a special thing as a parent, isn't it? Man, it delights your heart as a father to hear them go on and on about the gift. So what does that look like in our prayer life? You know, my own prayer life, as I'm telling God, thank you, I could, I could say this. God, thank you for saving me. Now that's good, right? We have to thank God for saving us. I could also say this. You know, God, I was born into a Christian home. But I don't take that for granted because, Lord, I remember that before I was born, mom and dad were unsaved and unchurched. And one day my dad was out in his front yard and this Baptist preacher came walking down the street knocking on doors. He stopped and began to talk to my father in the front yard and he led my dad to Jesus. My dad was saved and then dad went to church and was baptized. Mom started going and she was saved and baptized. So Lord, when I was born, I was born into a Christian home. Thank you for that. And I grew up hearing the gospel, and I'm so grateful, Lord, that I had a pastor that, that cared enough about me to come to my home on a summer afternoon and share the good news with me, and I was saved. You changed my life. You've been with me every step of the way. Thank you, God, for saving me. Do you see the difference between the two? In one, you're grateful, but in two, you're telling the story. And surely the Father delights in that as his child rejoices in what God has done. So we can pray and tell God these stories from our life and recount his faithfulness and be reminded of what he's done. There's a fourth thing related. Share your story. Look with me over in Joshua chapter 4. Look in verse 6. He wants him to take the stones... Out of the Jordan, set them up into a memorial. Verse 6, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Now notice the question there from the children. What do these stones mean to you? What do these stones mean to you personally? Tell me your personal story of your experience with God's power. Tell me your story of of being an eyewitness, of having a front row seat to seeing God move in this way. Tell me your story, Mom. Tell me your story, Dad, your personal story. What do these stones mean to you? You and I have the great and grand privilege of sharing our story. With our family, of course. I'll talk some more about that in a moment. With people in our sphere of influence. And every time we share our story, we are reminding others and reminding ourselves of what the Lord means to us. How He's changed our life. And every time we share that story, we are remembering God's might. We are, we are remembering God's grace, right? Share your story. There's a fifth thing here, and it is worship. If you want to remember God's 
mighty acts. If you want to remember God's grace, you need to be involved in corporate worship. Over in verse 24 of Joshua 4, it says, The reason God wants us to have these memorial stones is so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and that you, the Hebrew people, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. In other words, God wants his people to remember, to provoke awe in their lives, to provoke reverence in their lives, so they will worship God more fully. One of the ways that you and I practically can remember who God is and what he's done is by getting together with the family of God week after week after week after week and worshiping. There's something significant about God's people getting together. Over in Hebrews 10, the Bible says, Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Meet all the more as you see the day drawing near. You need to get together to to provoke each other, to, to love and good works. Don't forsake getting together. When we get together, we are reminded of who God is and what God has done. We're reminded of his faithfulness and we worship him in spirit and in truth. You and I need to be in worship. I don't know why it is that I'm prone to lose sight of who God is. I don't know why I'm so easily distracted by life. But I do know this. It is vital that I get together with my church family and take my eyes off of myself and off of my circumstances and place them on Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. And corporate worship is a very practical Uh, reality for you and for me. When we get together, we remember who God is, what God has done. Paul David Tripp says, corporate worship is designed to rescue us from our gospel amnesia and root our identity once again in the person and work of Jesus. If you suffer from gospel amnesia, if you lose sight of the glory of the good news, you need to get together with other Christians and worship. And we all do. Can I tell you there is an incredible dynamic that happens when God's people get together and focus upon Him and sing to Him and praise His great name and then open the Bible and study and learn. You know what happens? We remember together. And when that happens on a consistent basis, we cannot stay the same. Amen? Now, can I tell you this? I, I've, I've, you know, I've been to movies. I go to movies. I, I watch TV. You watch TV. I've been to Broadway plays. And I want you to know there is nothing that comes close to what happens when God's people get together. I'm a pastor. I've got to be here. I preach. But I don't come because I have to be here. I come because I want to be here. That's why I come to worship. And hopefully you don't come because you have to be here. You're checking off some religious checklist. Hopefully you come because you want to be here. Because you know when you get here, you'll you'll remember God's faithfulness. You'll remember what he's done for you. There is nothing like gathering together in corporate worship. I can make a prediction. If you choose to 
If you choose to put corporate worship on the back burner, if you choose to make that a lesser priority than other things in life, you will begin to forget God's faithfulness. And pretty soon, you'll start filling up your life like the people and judges. You'll start filling up your life with idols. And start living for yourself instead of living for the glory of God. That's a dire warning. You better believe it is. That's how important corporate worship is. And so, if you want to remember, worship. Unless you're providentially hindered, be here expectantly. Filled with the Spirit, a Bible on your lap. Come ready to remember God's greatness. Come ready to to exalt the name of Jesus. Come ready to be transformed yet again. As you worship in His presence. But there's a sixth thing and a last thing when it comes to remembering. And this is not an exhaustive list. There's more we could say. But the sixth practical way that you and I can remember is by this. We need to make remembering a family affair. Make remembering a family affair. Back in Joshua chapter 4, verse 6, notice what it says. It says, When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then fast forward to verse 21. He said to the people of Israel, When your children ask the fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? One of the reasons that God wanted Israel to build a pile of stones is to provoke conversation in families. He wanted children to see it and say, Hey, Mom, Dad, what's that all about? And in that moment, parents could remind their children of God's power and remind their children of God's grace and point their children to God's glory. So these stones were meant to provoke that kind of conversation. David Jackman writes this, Parents have a special responsibility to pass on this body of truth and experience with conviction to the next generation. So not just Israel, all of us have the responsibility to pass on God's faithfulness or remembrances of His faithfulness to the next generation. Ephesians 6, we're to train our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We're to pass on Knowledge of God to our kids. Jackman goes on to write, When they ask, what do these stones mean? Let us tell them. The most effective communication is often in the family circle where the questions arise naturally. Then is the time to tell our children the reality of our God, the certain fulfillment of His promises and His dependable love and faithfulness. And then Jackman writes this, I remember in my own life what an anchor of my soul it was when I went off to university and faced all sorts of intellectual and other challenges to my faith for which I had no immediate answer. And he writes, To know the reality of my parents' faith and have seen the unmistakable work of God in our family. By word and by example, we need to tell the next generation that the Lord's hand is mighty so that nothing is too hard for Him. Hear what this scholar writes? Because his parents told him of the faithfulness of God, because he saw God's work in his family, even when his faith was assaulted, he had an anchor to hold on to. 
He knew of the reality of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the power of God, because he learned it from his parents. And our job is to pass on the knowledge of the Lord to our kids so they have that same anchor in their life, so that when their faith is assaulted, and it will be assaulted, they will be ready. Because they've seen the unmistakable work of God in their parents, in their family. If we're going to remember, we're going to remember by telling the next generation of what God has done. When we remember God's faithfulness in the past, it shapes future generations. Listen to what the psalmist writes over in Psalm 71, powerful passage of scripture. Psalm 71, verse 17. The psalmist writes, O God, from my youth you have taught me, this is David, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. So the psalmist is saying, Lord, give me strength. Lord, give me life, not so I can just live longer, but give me strength and give me life so I can pass on the knowledge of the one true God to the coming generation. That was the psalmist's purpose in living. And that should be our purpose in living. That God would give us the grace to pass it on to our children and to our grandchildren in successive generations so that they will worship Him and follow Him in spirit and in truth. I read a sobering article by a blogger named Justin Taylor. The title of the article is this. And this ought to send chills up your spine. It only takes one generation for a church to die. That'll get your attention, won't it? It only takes one generation for a church to die. What does he mean by that? In the article he says that there's one generation that believes the gospel. The next generation assumes the gospel. They come along and say, oh, you know, we're all Christians here. And let's just do our religious thing, our religious duty, and do good works and have programs. But they don't make sure the gospel's front and center. They're not preaching the gospel clearly. They're not rejoicing in the gospel. They're not singing about the gospel. Because of that, they're just assuming, hey, we all know the gospel. We live in the Bible. Everybody knows the gospel, right? Everybody knows the gospel in, in Mississippi, don't they? One generation believes the gospel. The next generation assumes the gospel. And in this article, it says the next generation denies the gospel. That's what's happening in mainline Protestant denominations in our country. They're shriveling up and dying because there's a generation that believed the gospel. The next generation assumed the gospel, and now people are denying the gospel. And that can happen to any denomination. It can happen to any church. And it is our job, those that believe the gospel, it is our job not to assume the gospel. We must continue to be crystal clear about the good news, preaching it. Rejoicing in it, singing about it, writing about it, talking about it, passing it on the glorious good news that Jesus died for our sins, a substitutionary atonement, dying in our place, taking the wrath of God that you and I deserve. 
And he died on the cross and was buried. And early on the third day, he rose from the grave. He defeated death itself. And if anyone repents of their sin and and places their faith in Christ, they can be gloriously saved. That's good news. But we dare not assume that folks know it. I want you to understand. There are people within a one mile radius of this church who have never clearly heard the gospel. Have never heard a clear gospel presentation. Don't assume that because somebody lives in the Bible Belt or somebody's a Baptist that they know the gospel. We must be crystal clear and double down and preach the gospel in the power of the Spirit if we want successive generations to believe the gospel too. And so, how do we remember? We make it a family affair. We make sure that we are taking on the responsibility of passing on the knowledge of God to the next generation. If you're saved, mom and dad, you've got a story to tell. Tell your story. You might even put up some sort of some sort of visual representation that caused your kids to say, what does that mean? It may be looking through photo albums. Our kids love to look through our old photo albums. And you can, in in the context of looking at photo albums, talk about God's faithfulness to your family. And so, we need to make remembering a family affair. It is of utmost importance, which leads me to this point. God desires... That his people remember his power and grace for their good. There's danger in forgetting, right? So he wants us to remember for our good and ultimately for his glory. So he will get the glory and the worship that he alone deserves.